Chapter 12. Summary. They had all been born into this conflict, and each of them was shaped by it. Three weeks ago. Katara pulled her hood a little tighter around her ears and tried not to think. She let her feet lead her down the familiar routes, the same one she had taken every morning since the battle. The docks were a seething mass of people. Ships were coming in with salvage from the wreckage, and with them they were bringing the dead. A week after the Fire Nation had retreated, they were still pulling bodies from the water. Every morning, she would look at the faces of the fallen Fire Nation soldiers, checking each one before the Water Tribe workers would strip them of their armor and burn them. Not their usual method of dealing with the corpses of the enemy, but the sheer number of them was creating the risk of disease, even at polar temperatures. It was a thankless, gruesome task, but Sokka would have been dressed as one of them, so she had to look. She had to know. Waiting for an end to this awful hope was intolerable. But every day, with no signs of her brother, she would head back to Aang, and they would continue their lessons with Master Paku. Aang was listless, too miserable to focus. But Katara sucked it up like a sponge, forcing her feelings down and keeping them tight to her chest, even though they burned like ice against her skin. At first, Aang had wanted to come with her to the waterfront, to support her, to comfort her. But as the enormity of what he and La had done became apparent, he could no longer bear to be reminded, to see the dead laid out like broken toys along the docks. Katara understood his pain and his reluctance to face it. But unlike him, she also understood the fact that what had happened had not been his fault. He'd had even less control during that fight than he did in the Avatar state. Law was the spirit of the ocean, wild, eternal, and without care for mortal life. But when the day was done, and they lay curled together in the dark, while she tried to hold back the devastation, and Aang grappled with the staggering loss of life he had been a part of, there was a vast chasm between them, unspoken, but shadowed and dark beneath their feet. Had Law, and by extension Aang, destroyed the ship Sokka had been on? The specter of that thought hovered around them. They were both waiting for the inevitable. When would they pull her brother's half-frozen corpse from the water? And what would happen when they did? Katara wasn't sure. She didn't blame Aang. It hadn't been his fault. But she didn't know how she was going to feel when it happened. And Aang didn't either. She could see it in his eyes. The fear lurking behind a grief so vast that even she couldn't comprehend it. She didn't share it. His sadness over the Fire Nation dead. They could all burn as far as she cared. But she did grieve for Aang. He had lost everything, and yet somehow they just kept finding more things to strip away from him. Katara herself was a dam against a tide of emotion, and the pressure was building. She couldn't cry. She couldn't mourn. Not until she knew. Everyone had lost something in the battle. Her grief wasn't unique. But it swelled and it swelled every time she looked at the faces of the dead their bodies still dressed in their ugly, red-toned armor. Today the docks were bustling with activity, as usual, and the faces of the soldiers and workers were lined with exhaustion. Rebuilding was also taking place, trying to repair the damage from fire and machines. People were working tirelessly, running on more determination than sleep. Katara walked to the huge covered tents where the dead were laid out to be processed. People nodded to her as she passed, by now she was a familiar figure. 
Almost in a daze, she began the daily task of looking at the faces, checking each one. There was still so many. The losses the Fire Nation had suffered were staggering. But she couldn't feel any pity for them. She felt she might actually hate them dead as much as she did alive. Her compassion seemed to be shrouded by slowly simmering anger and swelling, stabbing fear. Katara! She jerked at the sound of her name. One of the men, who she knew by sight, waved her over. His face looked tense, upset, and her heart dropped to her stomach. The emotions surged and pushed inside her. Part of her didn't want to go to him, to see what he wanted to show her. But she needed to know. Spirits, she wanted a body to end this. But she also didn't want it to be him. She couldn't bear the idea of seeing him lifeless, just another soldier dressed in red. The thought of it ripped the breath from her lungs and tore at her insides. She nodded to the man, unable to speak, and looked at the corpse on the table. The boy lying still and stiff on the ice wasn't Sokka. It was Han. His face was the waxy color all the dead had taken on after a week in the frigid water. She gasped, took in one breath after another. It wasn't Sokka, but it felt like it may as well be. They had been on the mission together after all. There's not a scratch on him, the man said, his voice sad and respectful. Drowned or froze, probably. It felt like the end to hope, that tiny sliver of possibility Sokka had survived the destruction. In all likelihood, the boat they had been on had sunk, and they had gone into freezing water. Katara felt dizzy. She tried to put Han's face away in her mind like the others, but it kept swimming to the surface. She was walking, her feet leading her through the familiar paths of the city. Unlike previous days, they seemed to have led her in a different direction, although she barely noticed until she arrived at her destination. The spirit oasis. She hadn't even registered the guards, although they must have recognized her and let her pass. She found herself sitting in front of the pool and watching the two fish swim, oblivious of all the destruction they had helped rain down on the Fire Nation fleet and her family. They had suffered too, of course. Yue had lost her life, now trapped as the moon spirit, unless she had nearly passed over, restoring Twee's spirit life. Katara could honestly say she didn't know which would be worse. But in this moment, she didn't care about Yue or her sacrifice. She just saw Han's cold, still face, and her lively, animated, stupid brother, dead under the waves, pulled down to the bottom by the hated red armor he had been wearing. Would they ever even find him if that was the case? What about the people trapped in the ships as they sank, entombed under the uncaring sea? The thought was consuming her, tearing at her, as she stood and watched Twee and Law swim. Sokka would have jabbed a sharp elbow into her side and let her lean on him, so she could take comfort from his warmth and solid presence. Words would not have been necessary, but he probably would have had some anyway. No doubt something pithy and irreverent that would annoy her enough to jab him back, warming her heart and irritating her out of her dark mood. But he was gone. And it wasn't fair! The dam inside her shuddered and broke. All the rage and heartbreak and fear and horror came tumbling out, incoherent and furious. How dare they take her brother from her! From the world! Hadn't they taken enough? And Aang, he was too young to be going through all this guilt and pain, Pain that would crush most adult men. He was too young to be the last of his people. How must that feel? It wasn't fair! 
The water of the pool churned and rippled with her anger, bubbling almost like it was boiling, while she screamed her hurt and grief at it until her voice was raw. Unconcerned, the spirit swam on. Somewhere in her mind, Sokka laughed at her for yelling at a pair of fish. And finally, she cried. Two weeks ago, Azula had the weirdest feeling in her stomach, like she had eaten something that disagreed with her. She walked back to her quarters at a measured pace, outwardly unbothered by the news her father had given her, although she could still smell the scent of burnt hair clinging to her clothes. It's done, he had said. Rise, crowned Princess Azula. She should have felt victorious pride at the title, even as he had almost carelessly thrown Zuko's hair onto the ever-burning fire. It was a moment she had been waiting for, working for, and she had expected satisfaction, validation. But when it came to it, her feelings were confused, not something she enjoyed. Trust Zuzu to screw things up for her, even in death. She didn't appreciate the twist of emotions in her gut. She liked to be in control of herself, didn't like to consider giving in to pointless fretting over things she could do nothing about. When faced with something challenging, you looked at it from all angles, found the bits you could use, and disregarded the rest. These confusing, mixed feelings were preventing her from thinking clearly, and she was very aware that this was a time that clarity was going to be of the utmost importance. She wished she could just shove it all aside, but as she couldn't, she would need to pick it apart and make it work for her. The emotion that she could identify easily was anger. How dare scum like Xiao be allowed to execute her brother? His blood was her blood, royal blood. It was just unthinkable. Her father had not seemed bothered in the least. Azula realized she was angry at him for that. It was a frightening thing to feel. Dangerous. If he saw even a hint of it, she would be as dead as her stupid, soft brother. That was another emotion she could recognize. Fear. A feeling she hated, and usually refused to acknowledge when it wasn't practical. But fear was a useful emotion if you didn't let it control you. It helped you get out of harm's way. It told you when something was off, gave you warning to think about your reactions. The truth was, this was the worst possible time for this to happen. The buffer that Zuko had been was gone, and now it was just her and her father. And while this should have been a good thing, with her path clear to the throne, it wasn't. Azula had entered her chamber cautiously, checking the room quickly for intruders, as she always did and closed the door behind her. She wanted to slam it. But it wouldn't do to seem out of sorts. That would give her father a reason to look closer, and that would be a disaster. Because her father was behaving differently with her, she knew deep down that she was falling out of favor. She didn't understand how to rectify the situation. She knew exactly when it had started. It was when her fire had turned blue, hotter than even the Fire Lord's most fierce flame. He had a look in his eye, then, that had changed from pride to something else. It wasn't the one he had when Zuko had done something stupid or shameful. It was different, and because it was different, she had dismissed it. A very stupid thing to have done. She hated stupidity in others, but she loathed it in herself. If she had dwelt on it a little harder, she might have thought twice about her recent actions. A month ago, she had figured out how to shorten the time it took to call lightning, the complex forms took precious seconds to build the energy necessary for a strike. When she had demonstrated her lightning bending, 
It had taken half the anticipated time for the electricity to flow between her fingers. She had expected pride in her achievement, but instead she had received that narrow-eyed look. She had felt a chill, felt the fear, and realized she had made an error. But she could no more take it back than she could claw the lightning back into her body. Since then, the feeling had persisted. He was different. His regard was different. Watchful. Mistrustful. It wasn't fair. She had excelled where Zuko had failed time and time again, but somehow it wasn't enough. She had wondered, was still wondering, what she could do to make it better. How could she regain his trust? Capture the Avatar? How very Zuko of her. Azula began to strip off her armor. She felt reluctant to remove it from her body, like she was leaving herself open. She realized, somewhat belatedly, that the feeling squirming in her stomach alongside the anger and the fear was sadness. Not grief, but a dull, miserable ache. She was alone. Zuzu had been a buffer between her and her father, the failure she could always surpass. Now he was gone, and she was suddenly exposed. She wasn't safe or secure as crown princess, not by a long shot. Even when giving her the news of her new status, there had been something in her father's voice, a calculating look in his eye. When he had burnt Zuko's hair, she had felt it for the threat it was. Step out of line and I'll burn you just as easy. Azula sniffed. The smell of it was still clinging to her. She had to find a way to appease him. Her unwavering loyalty was apparently not enough. She wasn't enough. The feeling filled her with anger again. How dare he! After everything she had achieved for him! This must be what Zuko felt like. Horrible thought, to be so pathetic, so needy. Of course, the difference was he had never earned their father's respect. He hadn't deserved it like she did. He had done nothing but fail, while she had only done better and better. So why? Furious, she released her hair from its topknot, glaring at her reflection in the mirror as she sat at her dresser. Her thoughts seemed to be stuck in anger. She had to pull herself free of it and find a solution. But her mind wasn't cooperating today. How dare he let Zhao do that? How dare he give Zhao, a lowborn, bootlicking nobody, the right to kill her brother? Zuko was a traitor, and death was the only answer. But an unceremonious execution on Zhao's ship? It wasn't right. And if her father had so little regard for his son, his blood, that he would allow such a shameful death, where did that put her, if her suspicions were true? It frightened her. Just how much danger was she actually in? Azula wiped the makeup off her face. Without it, she looked more like her, and she stared herself down in the mirror. She had to remain calm, be logical, find her way through this. This could still be turned to her advantage. Her father had instructed her to find and dispose of her uncle. He was fat and lazy, but he had been a formidable man in his way. She wasn't worried, though. She would complete the task he had set for her, and more. She would prove to him she was worth trusting, that she was up to the job, and that look would disappear from his eyes. He would see her as he was supposed to, and even without Zuzu to take the brunt of his disdain and rage, she would excel. But even with her path laid out, she wasn't safe. She didn't feel secure. She hated it. Your Highness? A timid-looking maid entered the chamber with a fresh nightgown. She bowed, keeping her body submissive. Azula got up and allowed the girl to undress her, help her into her gown and brush out her hair. 
Becoming aware of her father's displeasure had made her rethink the woman that surrounded her. Her servants were all trained in fighting, although most weren't benders. An assassin was more likely to use a blade against an imperial firebender. These women were her protectors, her first line of defense. Not that she needed them. But they had stopped being a comforting presence. Azula was no fool. Any of them could be spying on her, reporting back to her father. In fact, most of them were. When she had realized the precariousness of her situation, she had laid small traps with insignificant information as bait. A careless, carefully spoken word here. A scrap of unattended correspondence there. If it made its way back to her father, she knew where their loyalty lay. It had been a disheartening experience and a hard lesson. She really couldn't trust anyone. Not even the woman who had tended her since childhood. Loyalty to her, and her alone, was very thin on the ground so where she found it, she made plans to cultivate it. This was something she was good at. Find a weakness and exploit it. Fear worked only as long as she and her father had the same aim. No one feared her more than the Fire Lord. Silly of them. Her fire burnt hotter. She had taken steps, of course. She had kept the worst offenders on her staff because it made feeding false information laughably easy. And she had taken on a few carefully chosen trainees, like this girl, just to undertake simple tasks, and to begin discovering all there was to know about them, before choosing the best option to help mold them into something she could use. "'Would you like tea before bed, your highness?' the girl asked, laying out a tray. She was small and plain, with a round face and big dark eyes. Out of all the servants who had been exposed to Azula's carefully left secrets, this girl was the only one who had not revealed them. Azula wasn't certain if that was because she was loyal or stupid. Either way, she had a different hold on her. Not fear, not greed, but gratitude. Thus far, it had proved strangely effective. Funny, the spies she had inherited from her mother were the ones she could trust the most, which wasn't saying much. Almost all had still squealed to her father. Spying was considered dirty work, low and deceitful, as though the scheming in the court was any better. They were all lying, blood-sucking backstabbers. And they all utilized spies, so they were hypocritical as well. It was funny that she would resort to her mother's network to keep herself in the game. But then, her mother had always said spying was a woman's work. Of course, Azula had been spying on her herself when she had overheard that, so clearly she hadn't been wrong. Tea would be lovely, Azula said, aiming for warmth. Her voice was just a touch too tense. She needed to control the feelings rolling through her. A single word out of place could be a disaster. She turned her thoughts back to the problem at hand. She would seek people she could trust to go with her to detain Iroh. But she received a great deal of correspondence from her people in the field, and leaving without someone to watch over it was going to be problematic. The girl knelt and poured water from the pot, careful and measured. Azula looked down at her dark head. She focused her breathing put aside her anger, and squashed the weird, achy feeling deep, deep down. "'What is your name?' she asked, as though she didn't know, her voice light and curious, reaching the correct tone this time. The girl looked up, startled, then averted her eyes politely when they met Azula's. "'Why, your highness?' "'I have a task for you, Hua,' Azula said. If gratitude would get her further than fear alone, she would have to see what happened when you mixed the two. Two weeks ago, 
The tent disappeared around him as Hakoda stared down at the small tuft of hair in his hand and felt something inside him shatter. It was an indescribable feeling. He had expected to lose a lot in this war, his life, his men, but it was to protect the things that were more important, his people, his culture, his children. His sacrifices were supposed to mean they had a future. They were supposed to live. This wasn't supposed to happen. Had Sokka been captured at the Battle of the North Pole? Rumors had been flying fast and chaotic over the past week, each less believable than the last. But the consensus had been the Northern Tribe had won the day, and the Fire Nation fleet was in retreat. But what would Sokka have been doing fighting in the battle anyway? Surely they were not so low in men that they sent out half-trained boys. Although he had done his ice-dodging rights, technically he was old enough to fight if he wanted to. The Fire Nation had taken their childhoods, as if they hadn't taken enough already. And now this? What is it, Chief Hakoda? General Huang asked. His deep voice was shocking. Hakoda had forgotten there were other people present, watching him as he looked at the hair in his hand. All thoughts of their war council had flown from his mind the moment he had seen what the package contained. And he had registered nobody save for Bato, who made a soft sound of distress and shock as the wolf tail had dropped into Hakoda's palm. It was still held together by a thin strip of blue ribbon. Hakoda took a few deep breaths, trying to find his voice. This admiral, leader of the fleet that attacked the North Pole, he began. He couldn't get the words out. His head was spinning, and his body was aching like he had taken a beating. He claims to have my son as a hostage, he finished. Hakoda took another deep breath. It wasn't helping. He wished he was on his ship, without these Earth Kingdom folk watching him. Huang grunted. Surely you don't believe him. Your children are safe in the South, aren't they? Hakoda shook his head. He hadn't felt fear like this since the moments before he had found Kaya's body. The South was attacked, Bato said into the silence. His voice was thick with emotion, too. Fear and crushing sadness. And they set out to find help from the North. I met them on the road. I wanted them to join us, but they were set on their course. The Water Tribe warriors had agreed not to mention the Avatar to their Earth Kingdom allies, not because they were afraid of betrayal to the Fire Nation, but because Sokka and Katara's friendship with the world's most powerful weapon could be something that people wanted to use. He had wanted to keep them safe. He had failed in every possible way, it seemed. Attacked, Huang said. There's no one there but women and children. Despicable, he spat. What were they looking for? It was a prince, apparently, Bato said, perhaps looking to make a name for himself and starting with a soft target. Easy to wipe out a few villages and call it a victory. The Fire Lord's son? Huang asked, his perpetual scowl lightening a little with sudden interest. They didn't specify whose son, but I assume so. I don't really know much about the royal family. Huang made a deep humming noise. The Fire Nation is pretty close-lipped about the line of succession, and especially Ozai's spawn. We know there are at least two children, but not much else. He has never put them into the field that we know of. He leaned forward, intent. What else did they say, Bato? Any information on this man could be useful. Bato scratched his head a little awkwardly. They, er, said he was an arsehole. That was about it. Over by the tent wall, Captain Chen snorted lightly. Sokka said that. His son. 
Hakoda reached out a finger to touch the hair. It felt strangely hot in his hand. Anything else? They must have said something. Mostly they said he was an arsehole. They reiterated that several times. They also mentioned that he's a firebender, that he attacked the village and caused a lot of damage, and that he was pursuing them. Why? Why would he go after them? I assumed to prevent them going to the north, getting our sister tribes involved in the fighting. Bato lied smoothly. But it was this admiral that contacted you, not the prince? Captain Chen asked. He was a big man, imposing, even slouched by the tent wall. What does his letter say? What does he want from you? Despite being at least a decade younger than Hakoda, he had been actively fighting in the war for far longer, and he had probably already guessed the gist of it. Hakoda couldn't focus enough on the words, so he handed it to Bato. He shouldn't be showing this much weakness, but he just couldn't get his thoughts in order. He says that he is holding Sokka, Hakoda's son, and that he is willing to discuss terms. Bato summed up. Hakoda was glad he hadn't read it out. He didn't want to hear the words. They were already burnt into his mind. One assumes those terms would either be a hostage exchange or a surrender, Captain Chen said, rubbing a big hand through his short brown hair. That would be my guess, yes, Bato said. You can't, Hakoda! Chief Rakuk burst out, rising to his feet. You can't really be considering it! He's my son! Hakoda snapped back no longer able to contain the anger and fear. And we are your people. We chose you to lead. You have a responsibility. I know that, but he's my son. Rakuk slammed a hand down on the table, rattling it with the force of the blow. What about my son? Dead only a year ago. Burned. My brother. Killed in the first engagement. He was panting in fury. We've all lost people, Hakoda. You can't throw that away. He struck the table again. We will not surrender. We chose you. You can't throw that away. He was right. Hakoda had been chosen out of all the village chiefs and elders to lead this fight, and he was right about their losses. Rakuk wasn't an easy man, or a particularly kind one, but he was fair. Chief Rakuk is correct, General Huang added sternly. If you leave, then Ba Sing Se will be undefended from the river and could be lost. We have our orders, and we have a plan. We can't deviate from it. We just don't have the time. He at least sounded a little apologetic, if not any less determined. I know! I know we can't risk the fleet! Hakoda said. He couldn't take the ships with him, even if he wanted to. There would be a mutiny. We can't risk losing you either, Hakoda, Shen said. Your men are strong, and your ships are fast. But it's your tactical skill that has kept them moving ahead of the Imperial fleet. That's what this admiral wants to take out. Hakoda shut his eyes. He had to think, had to give himself a moment to take this in. All of you leave me, he said. He probably had no right to order the Earth Kingdom general out of his own tent, but he hoped they would just give him some space to compose himself, decide on a course of action. Rakuk was still furious. Remember what we're fighting for, what we have bled for, buried our dead for. I'm not likely to forget. Hakoda snarled. General Huang nodded. We will speak again this evening. Bato, solid and true, helped usher Rakuk out, along with the rest of the Water Tribe warriors. Those from his own village, who had known Sokka since childhood, wore expressions ranging from grief to worry. Those from surrounding villages seemed to side more with Rakuk's point of view. 
Hakoda could understand it. He might feel the same if their positions were reversed. Hakoda looked at the hair in his hand. He couldn't leave Sokka in their clutches. It was unthinkable. I'm sorry for your loss, Captain Chen said, soft and sincere. Hakoda jumped. He hadn't realized the man was still in the tent. He's not dead, he snapped. You don't know that. Shen stepped up to the table, keeping his posture non-threatening, despite his size. But he was still here, when Hakoda had asked to be alone. Get out! I will, but first I need you to listen to me. The choice has to be yours and yours alone, but it's hard to see things clearly when you're caught in grief. It might help to lay it out. And you're going to do that for me? Yes. The Fire Nation put a lot of stock in their honor, but it's a lie. They have none. You have to consider the possibilities. He leaned a hip against the table. If they learned of your son's name, and it sounds like they may have if they are being pursued by this prince, then they might just be trying their luck. Can I take that chance? Would you? Hakoda took in a shuddering breath, closing his hand around the wolf's tail. No, I know this is my son's hair. I know. Shen nodded. All right, so let's say it is your son's hair although there is no guarantee that is the case. He may have been killed in the fighting. He may have already died in captivity. There is only a 50% chance he is still alive. That narrows the odds. Hakoda snarled at him. So what you're saying is there's only a slim chance the Admiral even has my son, and an even slimmer chance he is still alive? Yes. And then there is the more pertinent question. If you give yourself up to him, will he actually return the boy? I'm not saying these things to be cruel, Hakoda. Far from it. You need to think clearly before you make a choice that could impact us all, not just you and your family. This was a worse question than Shen knew. Was the Admiral aware Sokka had been traveling with the Avatar? If he was, then he would be stupid to give him up. In fact, it was a certainty that he would not. That left rescue as the only option. Shen sighed. His face was sympathetic, not angry. But it seemed he had somehow followed Hakoda's chain of thought. If you take the fleet out of battle for Ba Sing Se and leave it undefended, a lot of people, a lot of sons and daughters will die. If you transfer the command and go alone, we lose one of the best minds we have to fight this war, and our chances of holding the city decrease. If we lose Ba Sing Se, we are likely to lose the war. Hakoto closed his eyes. I know, he said, and he did. He didn't want to, but he did. Shen's face hardened slightly, his hazel eyes sharp and clever. The other thing to consider is that now that the Avatar is back in the world, now it is known he is an airbender. If they kill him, they will come for the Water Tribe next. They won't wait for him to be reborn and to grow into an adult. They will attack the North with everything they have, and they will destroy the South. All your people will die. I know! Hakoda wished the man would stop talking sense. It wasn't what he wanted to hear. If you choose to rescue your son, or to give yourself up to the Admiral, you will have my blessing and I will help you any way I can. Hakoda's head jerked up in surprise. Shen sighed. He looked pained. I just need to know that you understand the potential consequences, and I have to protect my people. That is my only goal. You would help me? With a few conditions. General Huang will kill you rather than have you fall into enemy hands. Spirits. Hakoda hadn't even considered that. He wasn't even wrong to take that stance. It was logical and sensible, 
and if it had been anyone else, Hakoda would have agreed with it. War meant you had to put aside your personal distaste for such things. The need of your people was greater than the need of the individual. What conditions? He asked almost reluctantly. If you go, take poison, and don't hesitate to use it. Don't risk my people on a fleeting hope, Hakoda. We have lost too much already. I've lost too much. I understand, Hakoda said. He wished he didn't. Captain Shen, thank you for your advice. Shen nodded. I'm truly sorry, Hakoda. I will take my leave. Hakoda didn't watch him go. He wished he hadn't had to listen to him. Rushing off to launch a rescue without thinking of the consequences was much easier than facing the stark reality of the situation. But Shen was right. If Hakoda failed, or even if he rescued Sokka at the expense of Ba Sing Se, was he then condemning Katara? His people? The Earth Kingdom citizens who just wanted to live free from the Fire Nation in its relentless crawl towards domination? How could he make either choice? How? Hakoda got up. He suddenly needed to be outside, to see the sun. The tent felt suffocating. He paused by the entrance flap when he heard voices just outside. He still needed to be alone. I don't know if I should thank you or curse you, Bato said. His voice sounded heavy with emotion. He won't go, Captain Chen said. There was a certainty in his voice that hadn't been there during their discussion. This will break him. Shen sighed. Shatter him, yes. To lose a loved one is an indescribable pain. But to have to choose to let a child die? I can't even imagine it. It's terrible. Unspeakable. It is, Bato said. Sokka is a son to me, too. I can't make this choice. But either way, I will be grieving. I'm sorry. Shen sounded like he meant it. He sounded so sincere that Hakoda didn't doubt him even that he would let him go and trust him to kill himself if things went wrong. Bato, this will break Hakoda's heart. It will shatter. But it won't break him. Not yet. Not now. After, if we win, perhaps. But now? He will do what we all do. Channel that rage and hate into the war. There was the sound of creaking armor, a waterskin being unstopped. Thanks. Is that what you do? The heaviness of Bato's voice tugged at Hakoda, even through the tumult of his fear and pain. Yes, I will never get my brother back. I will never save my mother from the pain she suffered at their hands. But I will make them pay for what they have done. I will keep fighting until there is nothing left. And so will Hakoda. Shen's voice was full of fervent anger. Hakoda had thought Huang was single-minded in his hatred for the Fire Nation, but it seemed his was just one flavor of it. They had all been born into this conflict, and each of them was shaped by it. Hakoda still has something to protect, Shen continued. He can't stop fighting. He made his choice when he joined the war, rather than waiting it out like the people before him. He's a good man. Better than you know, Bato said sadly. I hope there's something left at the end of this, but if there is not, it won't be in vain. Shen sounded so confident, like he knew what Hakoda would choose to do. And perhaps he did. If Hakoda tried to rescue Sokka alone, it was likely, almost certain, that they would both end up dead. Shen knew it, Bato knew it, and Hakoda knew it. If he gave himself up, and the Admiral had even the slightest notion that Sokka had a connection to the Avatar, then he would not keep his word. There was no way to be sure of what the man knew. 
He couldn't risk his people on the slim chance of success. He would never, ever forgive himself. But there was no other way forward. Ignoring Bato and Chen's surprised jump as he strode out of the tent, Hakoda made straight for where General Huang and Rakuk sat in heated discussion. They both rose to their feet as he approached. We keep to our course and make for Chameleon Bay, he said. The words burned his throat and crushed his heart. But Chen was right. The anger that flowed through him dulled the pain, just a little. He would make them pay, and he would never forgive himself. One week ago, Katara felt numb. They had been putting off this moment, holding out on the hope Sokka's body would be found. But they had run out of time. Whatever she thought about him, it was like an open wound, but they couldn't stay any longer. Aang needed to find an earthbending teacher, and they had to move on. It hurt, deep and stabbing. Time had not lessened the pain or her anger. She was packing up her things, slowly and reluctantly, when Master Paku came to see them. Normally, he would send a servant to fetch them if he felt the need to speak to them outside of practice, and the change in routine immediately put her on edge. That, and the fact he looked a little shifty, not something she was used to seeing in the old man. Avatar Aang, Katara, I am coming to you with a matter of some... delicacy, Paku said formally and without preamble. He still looked decidedly awkward and a little unsure of himself. Katara immediately felt her anxiety rise. How can we help, Master Paku? Aang asked, his face earnest and with no hint of concern. Paku cleared his throat. I have a friend who has found himself in a bit of a predicament, and due to the nature of his situation, he has no means to reach the Earth Kingdom. I was hoping you might be willing to give him a lift, so to speak. That was a lot of words for not saying anything, and Katara narrowed her eyes at him. We would be happy to help, Aang said, but there was a little frown creasing his forehead. Clearly, Paku's evasive behavior was rising as odd to him, too. There was more to this than simply helping out a fellow tribesman. Paku nodded. He looked even more uncomfortable. While I would like to take your word on that, it would be unfair of me to do so until you have more understanding of the situation. So I would request that when you leave, you fly to meet him in the spot I have indicated on this map. He handed over a rolled parchment. Listen to what he has to say. Then you may make your choice. There will be no resentment from me if you choose to leave without him. You won't tell us who it is? Katara asked. She didn't trust this at all, but she did trust Paku, after a fashion, and didn't think he would betray his tribe. Is he a criminal of some sort? Is that why you think we won't accept? Paku sighed. I suppose he is, but his position is a difficult one, and I owe him. I do not believe he means any harm to you, or any harm to our people, and I think he could do some good in the world, given the chance. Okay, Aang said. We'll think about it. I assume you want us to keep this between ourselves? I would appreciate it greatly. Suspicious. Very suspicious. After a few more awkward platitudes, Paku took his leave. Aang remained frowning slightly at the spot he had stood. That was weird, Katara said, which was an understatement. She had finished packing her own things, but hadn't quite managed to start unpacking up Sokka's belongings. It felt too final like they were giving up all hope. She supposed they were, seeing as they were leaving. She hadn't moved anything since the battle, and had left his space untouched. 
She eyed a dirty sock sticking out from under the sleeping roll, slung haphazardly in the corner. Her heart hurt so much. Her chest felt too small to contain it. Very weird, Aang said. He had a speculative look on his face. I think, he began slowly, that perhaps this friend is someone who is not supposed to be here. That makes sense, Katara said a little absently. It was just a sock. She just had to pick it up and put it in the bag. Just pick it up! She reached for it, movement stiff and jerky, and held it for a second. There was a hole in the toe. She had the stupid thought she should try to fix it. Aang was chewing his lip with a narrowed eye and thoughtful look. With a great deal of difficulty, Katara turned her mind away from her brother as she started packing up the other bits and pieces of what had been his life and stuffing them in the bag. Aang had come to a conclusion of some sort, and she needed to catch up. It was just that, since the battle, it felt like her mind was sticky and slow, like honey. You think it's someone from the Fire Nation? The thought jumped into her mind and was out of her mouth before she finished it. It made sense. Why would he say, our people, otherwise? If it was a Water Tribe criminal, that would be unnecessary to point out. I think so. Or someone unaffiliated, like a pirate, Aang said. Why would he be friends with the pirates? But then, why would he be friends with someone from the Fire Nation? Katara took some deep breaths. The very idea of helping one of them, for any reason, made rage boil through her. But she fought it down. Paku must have a reason, or he wouldn't have asked. He knew they were grieving. He knew they would refuse right away if he mentioned it before they got there. It could only be the old man that had helped them at the spirit oasis. Zuko's uncle. But where there was the uncle, there was Zuko, and she did not think Paku would agree to get him to safety. She suspected, from the look on his face, Aang had reached the same conclusion. It could be a trap, she said, one Master Paku is unaware of. I don't think so. Aang twisted his mouth in a pensive little frown. Katara fastened the ties on the bag, everything left of her brother all neatly packed up. Why would Paku, a waterbending master, be friends with a firebender, especially one attached to the royal family? I can't imagine it, she said. It's strange, but then why did he help us? He worked against his own people. Katara snorted. Because Zhao was insane. Killing the moon would have a terrible impact on the Fire Nation, too. It was self-interest, Aang. Maybe, but he did help us. I think we should hear him out, at least, if it is him. Katara didn't want to. She didn't want to see another Fire Nation face as long as she lived. Just the thought of it made her seethe. But Aang was right. They did owe him, after a fashion. Okay, but we go in carefully, just in case it is a trap. And if Zuko's there, we dunk him in the ocean and leave. Aang smiled, a small uptick of his lips, and looked at her without that looking fear for the first time in weeks. If Zuko's there, you can chuck him in the ocean, I promise. Good. It wouldn't make her feel any better, but it would be satisfying. They circled three times before bringing Appa into land, just to make sure the old man was alone. It appeared that he was. He was seated quietly and passively, exactly where Paku had marked on the map. There was nowhere for anyone to hide to spring an ambush. Aang bounced off Appa in a wish of air. It is you! Er, uncle? I thought it would be, he said. The old man smiled at him, 
although the expression was clearly slightly forced. Katara huffed quietly to herself. Uncle was far too familiar. But although Zhao had shouted the man's name, she didn't want to admit she had forgotten it, too. "'You seem to have mislaid your nephew,' she said instead. She knew it was spiteful, but she couldn't keep the words back. Although he looked so careworn, face creased with an expression of grief she recognized in herself, she almost wished she had. "'Indeed. I understand I am not the only one to have suffered a loss. You have my sincere condolences, Katara.' "'I don't want your condolences! They mean nothing!' She snapped. He nodded. I understand, and I will understand if you refuse Master Paku's request. You have no reason to help me, and even less to trust me. Damn it, he looked so sad. It shamed her to admit, seeing his old, tired face looking so forlorn and miserable, pulled at something inside her, made her want to offer comfort. There could only be one reason for that horrible fear and sadness to be etched into his features. What happened to him? she asked, softening her voice a little. It was surprisingly easy. Aang nodded. He looked a little worried. Actually, he looked upset, like Zuko was another loss for him, which made no sense to Katara. Good riddance, as far as she was concerned. I don't know for certain. My nephew has been missing since the battle, the old man said. Maybe he just went home with the ships, Aang asked hopefully. I'm afraid it is a little more complex than that, young Avatar. If he left with the remaining ships, it would not be of his own volition. Why? Katara demanded. The old man looked even more pained. His situation is complicated, and he is not in favor with his father. Some actions he has taken over the last few months could arguably misconstrued as treason. He sighed heavily. And I fear my actions working against Zhao during the battle might also reflect badly on him. Katara chewed her lip. Zhao and Zuko hating each other was not news to her. She remembered he had also been taken captive when they had been on Roku's island. Zhao had called him a traitor, even then, although it wasn't clear what he was supposed to have done. She had just assumed it was some sort of power struggle. So you think his own people have taken him prisoner? She asked, slightly disbelieving. I suspect that is the case. As far as Paku and I can discern, he is not among the dead and as I said, he would not have returned with the ships willingly. While thoughts of the battle, and of Zuko, filled her with fury, the fact that his uncle had been looking at the dead, the same as she had, full of fear and terrible hope, resonated somewhere under all the anger. Of course, Zuko was probably alive, whereas Sokka was almost certainly not. So, where do you want to go? Are you going to try to find him? Aang asked. That is my plan, yes. I am rather short on resources, and was hoping to find someone to help me rescue him. Katara frowned. He really needs rescuing? None of that made sense, but Aang and Zuko's uncle were already making concerned faces at each other, and would probably continue to do so all night, with no further explanation unless she pushed them. I believe so. I suspect he has been captured by Admiral Zhao, who has a personal dislike for him. Aang's concern racked up a little more. You think it's very serious? He glanced at Katara beseechingly. Will Zhao hurt him, uncle? The man nodded gravely. Yes, I very much think he will. He is a vindictive and cruel man, and Zuko has embarrassed and annoyed him on several occasions. Not to mention, he is not the most... polite under pressure. Katara snorted. Or any other time. 
Zuko's uncle bowed his head in wry acknowledgement. If you are willing to take me to the Earth Kingdom, there might be some people who will aid me in finding Zhao's ship. Aang was wearing a determined look, and Katara's heart sank a little. That was a trouble face. I owe Zuko, he said. Katara shook her head. Owe him? You owe him nothing! I do. There was really no point arguing with him, but she was going to anyway. For what? Aang shot a little sneaky glance at the old man. It was not particularly subtle, but he politely pretended not to have seen it. I'll tell you later. Zuko's uncle cleared his throat. Where are the two of you going? To find an earthbending teacher? He asked. No, Katara said, just as Aang said, yes. The old man's lips twitched. Would you by any chance be heading to Omashu? Bumi is an old friend of mine, and it was he I was hoping to impose on. He smiled winningly. Katara gave him a look. Like Master Paku is your friend? You have a lot of interesting friends for a firebender, uncle, Aang said. Oh yeah, he was sold on the old man's story. Katara sighed. Zuko's uncle smiled again, this time with genuine warmth. You get as old as me and you end up with friends in strange places. It is one of the great perks of living into your later years. Katara wasn't sure what she thought of any of this. Was he telling the truth? Annoyingly, she thought he might be. Why would Bumi help you find Zuko? He's an enemy prince! Well, technically, so am I. Or, I was. I suspect the Fire Lord has revoked my birthright by now. As for Bumi, he will do it for the sake of my friendship, although he might end up driving a hard bargain. What sort of bargain? Aang asked. As you say, Zuko is an enemy of the Earth Kingdom, and his quest to capture you, Avatar, is rather counterproductive to Bumi's aims, so he might suggest keeping him under lock and key for the duration of the war. I doubt Zuko would agree to that, Katara pointed out. The old man shrugged. Probably not. He would escape, Aang said with a disturbing level of surety. Almost certainly, Uncle agreed, but it would be worth the risk to get him to safety. He is all I have. Katara huffed out her breath. There was no way Aang was going to do the sensible thing and say no. She wasn't even a hundred percent sure she was going to say no at this point. She hated Zuko and everything he stood for, but she didn't like the sound of what Uncle was saying. She wanted Zuko out of the way. She didn't want him to suffer or die. Not much, anyway. Aang was giving her the puppy dog eyes. Uncle? She started and then scowled. Now she was calling him that. She sighed again. She was doing a lot of that lately. Uncle, do you swear you mean no harm to Aang or to King Bumi? I swear it on my honor and my life. Fine. If Aang wants to take you to Bumi and rescue your stupid nephew, then I have no objections. She told herself it was because the idea of Bumi locking Zuko up for the rest of the year was just too good to pass up, rather than any other reason. Aang's smile was like a sunrise, bright and full of hope. Okay, we'll take you to Omashu with us and speak to Bumi. We can fly down the coast and keep an eye out for the fleet. If we spot it, we can attempt an early rescue, or at least figure out the right course to take when we get to the city, he said, full of a sudden enthusiasm. It lifted Katara's sore heart a little to see it. Uncle's eyes widened, and he bowed right to the floor. It made Katara uncomfortable to watch. If you would do this, I would be forever in your debt. Every day he remains in Zhao's clutches is a risk to him. Although my nephew may struggle to show his gratitude, you will always have mine. Please don't, Aang said. He was practically hopping from foot to foot with his own discomfort, 
You don't need to do the bowing. I told you, I owe him, and I would help anyway, even if I didn't. And I owe Xiao, Katara put in. Oh yeah, she owed him for what he did at the North Pole. For Sokka. Her tone left no doubt how unpleasant she intended to be for him when she paid that particular debt. She would sink the whole lot of them, call up a watery tempest like they had never seen, and destroy them. After they had rescued Zuko, obviously. Then they would tie him up and deliver him to Bumi for safekeeping. She doubted they would keep him there long, but it would give them a head start at least. It sounded like a reasonable plan, such as it was. To Omashu, then! Aang cheered. Now. Sokka woke up with the sun on his face. It was such a strange, wondrous feeling. Even though his body ached and the horrors of the last month were lurking like poisonous shadows in the corner of his mind, the light lifted his spirits like nothing else could. He was alone. Zuko must have woken earlier, and Sokka had been so deeply asleep he hadn't even registered the loss of his body heat. Thoughts of Zuko made the urgency of the situation rise in his mind, shooting adrenaline through his tired limbs. He pushed himself to his feet and wobbled a bit, as his muscles reminded him they were not impressed with his efforts at swimming for miles after not feeding them properly for a month. He hoped Zhao started his hunt far away. He wasn't sure he was going to be up to too much actual running. He would give it his best shot, though. Sokka staggered back towards the beach. He figured Zuko would head there so he could keep an eye out for the ship. Sokka floundered through the underbrush, but it didn't take long to find him, stretched out in the sun like a starfish. He looked awful, skinny and pale, with the burns standing out red and angry on his skin. The bruises were turning black and blue, too, and there were a lot of them. The ones on his face and neck were bad, but they also covered his thighs and lower stomach. Stupidly, Sokka let himself wonder what those were from. Then he remembered the way Zhao had slammed Zuko onto the table, back before things had gotten so horribly out of hands. He had been bruised a little after that. This was much worse. Realizing what had caused the marks made Sokka's mind assault him with images of what might have happened, and that awful sick, cold feeling started shaking through his limbs, chasing away the warmth of the sun. He shook his head, trying to dislodge the unwanted thoughts. He still couldn't quite believe what had happened over the past few weeks. The feelings of fear and pain and horror felt distant, but also present insidious and creeping around the edges of consciousness. It seemed no matter how far away they were in the bright daylight, the memory of them was still lurking in his mind, ready to drag him back there, to the dark underbelly of the ship. But that was a problem for another time. They still had a fight ahead of them to stay free, to make sure they never had to return there. Despite the battered state of his body, Zuko had his face tilted into the sun, and he looked almost content. He had been almost a month without his element. It had been weeks since he had been able to bend properly. This must be almost as much of a relief for him as it would be for Sokka when they found safe water to quench the never-ending thirst. Hopefully, with a little more sunbathing, Zuko might start to regain his strength, although Sokka assumed bending took energy, and they had precious little of it. They would need to eat many nutritious meals before they could heal the damage from starvation. Spirits, but Sokka wanted some proper food. Water was more important, though. That would have to be the priority once they were up and moving. 
Next to Zuko, their clothes were laid out to dry. Sokka picked up his pants and shook the sand off them before putting them on. His balance wasn't great, and he staggered a bit, noisy enough that Zuko opened one cat-like golden eye to look at him. They were true yellow in the morning light, eerie and weird. It was a color Sokka had always associated with the Fire Nation, but on Zuko, it no longer stirred feelings of revulsion or hate. "'Morning, sunshine,' he said, examining his shirt. It was ripped beyond repair, but perhaps they could use it for bandages. Sokka's dressings were old and dirty, and they needed to be rewrapped. All their injuries needed to be looked at and cleaned. Zuko had sand stuck to the burns on his hips, and that was potentially going to be a problem. They probably should have tended the wounds last night before sleeping in the dirt. Oh well, no help for it now. Morning, Zuko croaked at him, pushing himself up on his elbows, wincing as he did so. They were going to need water first, but second to that, they were going to need medical attention. They barely had any salve left, maybe enough for one use for each of them. Sokka wished he knew more about the plants and herbs that could be found in this part of the world. As soon as they reached civilization, he was going to patch that gap in his knowledge with the vigorous application of some reading. Any bending? he asked. No, nothing yet. Zuko looked a little worried under the bruises. We should wash up, Sokka suggested. He wagged the shirt. Wash this too. It might work for bandages. Okay. Zuko got up slowly and awkwardly. It was clear he was trying not to look as hurt as he was but his legs were shaky and he couldn't keep the grimace off his face as he got to his feet. They hobbled to the shore. Sokka realized he was going to have to take his pants off again. He was reluctant to be parted from them, but such was the way of it. The water was chilly as it washed against his calves, and he wiggled his toes, enjoying the feel of the wet sand. Anything that wasn't cold metal felt like a new experience. There was a thrill in the novelty of sensations that weren't hurt and misery. Zuko didn't seem to be enjoying it quite the same, though, and just waded into the water before washing off sand with forceful movements, probably taking off half his skin with the way he was scrubbing at himself. Careful! Sokka reprimanded him. Don't reopen any wounds. We can't risk infection. Just wash it gently. Of course, Zuko was as gentle with his own injuries as he had been with Sokka's, approaching them like they were something he had to defeat rather than tend to. They bathed quickly. The horizon was clear for the moment, but there was no doubt Zhao would be after them, and the urgency was filling Sokka's blood again. He itched to get going. Judging by the way Zuko was moving, it would not be a particularly fast journey, so the quicker they got started, the better. Help me bandage my arms, and I'll do your burns, Sokka said, walking back out of the surf and pulling his pants on again, his damp skin sticking to them. He would never underestimate the joy of having pants again. He wished Zuko had some, too, but he just had that hateful shirt. At least it was long enough to preserve his modesty, or would be if he had any. Still, at least they had something and would not have to wander naked through the Earth Kingdom. Sokka's arms were still a mess, and leaving the bandages on for so long had done them no favors. Zuko poked and prodded the surrounding skin carefully, looking for signs of infection, before grunting and smearing salve onto them with the same heavy-handedness he always had. Sokka whined and averted his eyes. He hated this. Tending Zuko's hurts was a little more fraught. He was stiff and furious as Sokka gently rubbed the remaining salve over the burns on his hips. 
Some of the blisters had opened, and the skin was inflamed. Sokka did his best and tried to keep his touch as impersonal as he could. He didn't know if bandaging them with the torn shirt was a good idea or not. Just leave it. I heal fast. Zuko told him, wrestling the huge red shirt back over his head. This was clearly untrue, as Sokka had been witness to numerous bruises and cuts healing at the normal rate over the past month. But it was his choice, so instead of pushing it, Sokka carefully bundled up the scraps of cloth and attached them to his makeshift belt. No point in leaving anything behind. What now? Sokka asked. Now suddenly seemed daunting. Sokka didn't know where they were or where to go. I want to find my father, but I have no idea where to even start. Zuko looked at the sand beneath his feet and plucked at the hem of his sleeve. We should head north, inland, away from Zhao. The logic made sense, but Sokka would not find his father inland. Where are we? he asked, worrying his lip with his teeth. Zuko squatted and started to sketch the sand. We're on the lip of the eastern sea, somewhere on this bit of coast. He pointed to the outer strip of land he had drawn. If we go north, we can remain parallel to the sea. We can look for rumors of your father. But if we stick to the coast, east or west, Zhao will find us easily. He was probably right. Okay, most important thing is to get away from the sea. No point in giving Zhao any advantage. Sokka scratched at his short hair, dislodging a surprising amount of sand. Where are we going, though? Where do you want to go? The idea of splitting up did not appeal, but Sokka knew what he had to do. What Zuko wanted or planned to do now was much less clear. Once we get our bearings, I need to find my father, or send word to him. I can't let him fall into Zhao's trap, he said with some reluctance. He didn't think Zuko would want to come with him for that. He was an enemy of the Water Tribe, after all. But he also didn't know where else he had to go. If he was coming, he would have played his hand already, Zuko said bluntly. Sokka winced. That kind of stung. But he still couldn't take the risk. You didn't answer my question. I want to find my uncle. So he was still determinedly sticking to that idea that Ira was alive. Well, whatever kept him going. Where are you going to start? He asked as they began walking up the beach. Sokka marked their progress with some concern. His muscles hurt from the previous day's exertions. He burnt with thirst and his limbs felt limp, but Zuko was moving like an old man. To show that much pain and weakness must mean he was truly in a bad way. Sokka was going to have to keep a close eye on him, just to make sure he didn't keep staggering on until he dropped dead. It was going to be like hurting a grumpy tiger dillo with a sore paw, and he wasn't looking forward to it. General Singh, Zuko said as they reached the tree line. He's the one Zhao said. He's the one he said had my uncle. Where's he based? He has a fort. It's not really in the colonies. It's only recently claimed land, close to the outskirts of the desert. Where's that? Sokka recalled the map in his mind's eye. The desert was north, so they would be heading in the right direction. Having a goal would help Zuko keep moving, although it might make it harder for Sokka to make him stop and rest. Right, north it is, Sokka said. They could travel in that direction until they reached a town at least, so they could find some level of medical care. Just until he knew Zuko was going to be okay. Then they would have to part ways, so Sokka could find his dad. The thought was not a pleasant one, but he would worry about it later, after they had escaped from Zhao. When we're traveling, we're going to need aliases, you know, Earth Kingdom identities, he said, to distract himself from thinking too much about the future. 
Zuko grunted while he carefully removed any traces of their camp. By that, I mean, you need an earthy name. Nothing too flamey. Sokka said. Zuko gave him a long, annoyed look. Lee, he said after some contemplation. That's not very original. Exactly. There are hundreds of Lees. He gestured toward the forest. Let's go. No one is going to believe I'm Earth Kingdom anyway. Sokka wasn't so sure. The eyes were going to be a problem, but that was not the first thing you saw when you looked at Zuko's face. And after a hundred years of colonization and war, there were bound to be people of mixed heritage here. Sokka was already making up a suitably tragic backstory for poor Lee. It could work, so long as no one squashed them first and asked questions later. He followed Zuko through the trees, flinching a little from the prickly scrub under his feet. Okay, so you're Lee of the Earth Kingdom, and I'm going to be Rocky. Zuko turned to glare at him. You can't be Rocky, that's a stupid name. How dare you insult my name? It's fabulous, very earthy. It's stupid. Zuko was making a furious, pitchy frown at him, and Sokka fought back a smile. Rocky, son of Boulder, son of Cliff. Sokka! Rocky! Zuko made an inarticulate noise of frustration and stomped ahead. Well, it was more of a heavy-footed stagger than a stomp, but the spirit was there. Sokka let himself grin a little. The road was likely to be a tough one, but for the first time in far too long, he had a little hope. The end. I am 